Well, good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful day, third Sunday in Advent, a day of rejoicing. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the fact that uh, we have reason to rejoice and be thankful every day, and especially at this time of year, we are uh, given even uh, greater reason for uh, approaching you with joy and with a sense of awe and reverence at what you have done and uh, continue to do and what you will do. As we have sung about uh, the coming of our Lord, we, we know, Father, that the, the first coming of Christ uh, gives within us an appetite and a desire to, to see him uh, again, and uh, we look forward to his return. In the meantime, Father, we ask for your continued help, the help of your Spirit, to walk faithfully in the light as Christ is the light. We are aware, Father, that we live very much in a fallen world as we have been reminded through our time of confession. We ourselves still uh, stray and wander. Our mind and our heart are not always set on the things of Christ and we sin. We thank you, though, for your grace that despite our failings, your love for us is sure and that is a foundation uh, that will never be shaken and one upon which we can build a life of faith and trust and hope. Father, we are aware as well in this fallen world that, that things happen. Uh, and we have heard uh, and seen in the news the tornadoes that have just worked their way through Missouri and Kentucky and have devastated uh, villages and towns and homes and lives have been lost. And so we pray for those helping in the recovery, those who have lost uh, loved ones and property, we pray, Lord, that you would walk with them through the time of restoration and renewal, comfort them in their grief as well, Lord God, as they mourn not only the loss of property which can be replaced, but loved ones, Father, who cannot. And so we ask for your grace to be with them, for your loving kindness to be lavished upon them. And closer to home, Father, we pray for those in our own body here who are suffering still from the effects of COVID, some Lord, uh, recovering, some still in the midst of it. We pray for your healing grace and virtue to be released toward them and that they would be restored to health. We thank you for our health, and we ask that you would uh, help us, Father, to uh, uh, not take that for granted, but to be always aware of the need to care for our bodies uh, and care for one another in that. Lord God, we turn now to your word, and we ask that as it is a living word, it would speak to us. As it is a living word, it would shape us and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. That by so doing, we would learn to glorify you and to be thankful, to be salt and light as you have made us. So we invite your Holy Spirit to open our heart and our mind now to understand. And then, Father, with the Spirit's help to apply what we have learned. Father, we turn our hearts to you now and we ask and pray for these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So in this third Sunday of Advent, I remember um, when our children were young, Ad Advent always made them impatient. Uh, it was hard waiting for Christmas. It was, uh, if you are a fan of C.S. Lewis, you know, in The Lion, in which in the wardrobe, you know that he says in one of the lines there, it's always winter and never Christmas. And so when our kids would approach the Advent season, it was like, it's always Advent. When's it going to be Christmas? And uh, so that kind of impatience may be sort of the, the privilege of children, but it, it's certainly not a virtue. 
especially during Advent. It's hard to wait. Uh, one year, then, in an effort to sort of temper their impatience, we gave each of the children, we have three, an, an Advent calendar, hoping that that would build this sense of anticipation and at the same time calm their impatience. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, the calendars only increased their impatience as they opened each day, uh, and the, the chocolate that was in there didn't help either. Uh, Advent is a season of waiting. It's a season of waiting and preparation. And the patience, then, is a necessary virtue for this season. And, but given the proximity of Thanksgiving to Christmas and the acceleration of the holiday season, life gets very busy very, very quickly. Things get hectic. And there are things that need, need to be done. And patience can be in short supply. It can be as rare. Uh, in New England, they say patience can be as rare as a blue lobster, if you know anything about that. Besides, when you think about it, how do you celebrate waiting? It's counterintuitive to be patient, especially given the culture in which we live. We live in a, almost a, a fast as a speed of light kind of pace at which life demands a lot of us and a lot from us. In Advent, it seems, the ancients knew what they were doing. Because Advent is a season that is purposely designed to slow us down. It aims to teach us, if you will, the double-dip discipline of waiting and patience. And it does this by reminding us to remember the stories of believers in past times who themselves had to learn to trust God and to trust God's faithfulness by learning to wait with patience. And so as a season of waiting and patience and preparation, Advent is a time to contemplate even the patient faithfulness of God. Advent reminds us that God keeps His promises, that He's true to His Word, that He follows through on what He says He will do, and that He is, in all of that, the source of true hope, true comfort, and true peace, peace that lasts, peace that endures. Advent is really when we remember what the writer of the Hebrews said about the coming of Christ, that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So Advent reminds us that we live as well in this already not yet tension created by the miraculous character of Christ's first advent and the confident expectation of his second advent. And that's what we're waiting for. Because since God proved his faithfulness the first time by sending Christ to redeem us from our sins and to restore our fellowship with God, so we have a confidence in knowing that God will keep his promise in sending Christ again. But it's hard to wait. And waiting for Jesus to come back requires patience. It's like waiting for Christmas. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to get ready for. And waiting, as we know, is not really a passive activity. It's not sitting on our hands, particularly when the Bible talks about waiting. Waiting for Jesus means we, we put into practice the things that he taught us. It also means we learn the lessons of faithfulness. And that really, as we get into our text in just a minute, that's going to be the big idea for this message, that we learn faithfulness by waiting for God to keep His promise. 
We learn what devotion looks like by waiting for God to keep his word. And we learn to follow through on our commitment to God to follow him by waiting for him to follow through in his promise to us. The Bible is filled with stories of people who waited for God to keep his promise, who learned faithfulness while they waited for God to keep his promise. In Luke 2, we learn and read about two such people, Simeon and Anna. And like so many characters in the Bible, Simeon and Anna just show up. They play their part, they say their lines, and then like every good actor, they retreat from the stage so that Christ can take center stage as he is meant to. So they come before us, do Simeon and Anna, as examples of waiting with patience and patience while waiting, of a faithfulness to a God who is faithful to keep his promises. And so with that, let's read the text that I've uh, selected for this morning from Luke's Gospel, uh, chapter 2, verses 25 to 38, where Luke, who is giving us a recorded history of the life of Jesus, both in Luke and in Acts, writes here, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, or Messiah. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Sometimes... When God rewards our faithfulness, He does it in an unexpected way at an unexpected time. And that's really the case with Simeon. It's, Simeon's story is about God rewarding His faithfulness in an unexpected way. Luke tells us everything we know about Simeon. We know that he was in Jerusalem. We don't know if he lived there or not. We just know he was in Jerusalem. We know that he happened to be there, just so happened to be there at the very same moment that Joseph and Mary bring Jesus to present him to the temple according to the law. It's no coincidence, however, that they are there at the right time. We know that God has arranged this meeting because of what Luke has told us about how the Holy Spirit informed and revealed to Simeon he would not die before he saw the Lord's Christ. 
We know that his name is Simeon, and loosely translated, Simeon means the hearing one. And it's likely that the roots of his name reach back into the Old Testament, into the book of Deuteronomy, where Moses, in calling the people to worship God, tells them in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Simeon's name then tips us off to the kind of man he is. And in some ways, then, the kind of people we should be. He's a man who hears. He's a man who hears from God, and specifically a man who hears from God and then does what God says. So he becomes an example to us of someone waiting patiently, waiting faithfully to God to be faithful, all the while in that waiting time, listening and hearing what God would say to him. That's a good lesson to learn, to be hearing as we wait. Because sometimes when we are waiting and we grow anxious, we don't hear so well. We hear lots of thoughts in our head, lots of fears, lots of anxieties, lots of worries, lots of cares that distract us from what we're supposed to be doing, and we get preoccupied with them. And Simeon was able to put those aside and hear and listen for what God wanted him to do. How do we know that? Because Luke describes him as a man who is righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It tells us that Simeon feared God, that he followed the law wholeheartedly, sincerely. He didn't follow the law for show. He was true to his word. He said what he meant, and he meant what he said. And he was waiting, Luke tells us, for the consolation of Israel. That's a a word, a phrase that refers to the Messiah, the coming of the Holy One that would redeem Israel from their sins and oppression. And we don't know how long Simeon waited. But we can assume that he is an older man, a little older than, little older than me, maybe a lot older than me, maybe in his 70s or, or 80s. He'd been waiting a long time. And I always tell our kids, <clears throat> they don't appreciate this when I would tell them this when they were younger and even now. One of the lessons I've learned about life is that life is like sitting in traffic. I don't like sitting in traffic. And I would guarantee that you don't like sitting in traffic either. What are you doing when you're sitting in traffic? You're just stuck there. You've got your left one place and you're heading toward another place. But you can't get to the other place because you're stuck in traffic. You're waiting. And waiting for God is kind of like that. You're just anxious to get where you're going, and you can't understand why people aren't moving. But you're just stuck there, and you have to listen and learn and hear. And one of the hardest lessons to learn while you're waiting and stuck in traffic is patience and faithfulness. This may explain why patience and faithfulness then are recorded as being fruit of the Spirit in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Because faithfulness requires patience, and patience requires faithfulness. Both require a supernatural origin. They must be given to us as gifts from the Holy Spirit, because we're waiting. Some of us are waiting. I remember when I was a little boy, I couldn't wait till I was older. I couldn't wait as, when I was a little kid. I couldn't wait till I got mail addressed to me, and now I don't want it. <laughs> I couldn't wait till I, I couldn't wait till I got married. And then when I was married, I couldn't wait till we had children. And some of you may be in that mode. You're just waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting. And that waiting requires and imposes upon you a certain kind of faithfulness because you can't hurry it. And to quote the you know, Motown theologian Diana Ross, you can't hurry love. 
right? You just have to wait. You're just waiting. But waiting, that waiting is designed to build in a faithfulness and a patience because God waits. He waits for us. We, we came to Christ maybe at an early age, maybe in later years, but God was waiting all that time until we realize who he is and our, what is our need of him. So in all probability, Simeon's faithfulness is due to two important things. We know the Holy Spirit was upon him, which is a rare thing prior to Pentecost. You read the Old Testament, very, very few people are listed and categorized as people on whom the Spirit rested. So Simeon, we know, is set apart for this particular task of waiting. So think about that. Because now in the light of Pentecost, we now, with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, have been set apart to wait. But as we wait, we also do. We are salt, we're light, we're practicing, we're getting on with life and things like that. So his faithfulness is inspired by the fact that the Spirit is upon him, but it's also inspired by the fact that, again, the uniqueness of Simeon, the Spirit revealed to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. And I'm just wondering how many people Simeon told this to. Or if he just sort of kept that to himself because, you know, if I start going around telling people I'm not going to die until I see the Lord's Messiah, they may not think I'm in my right mind. But that's the position that we are in today, post-resurrection, post-ascension of Jesus. The Spirit may not have revealed it to us in a sense of a revelation, but we have the Word of God. We have what we know by virtue of faith. Simeon waited with a patient faithfulness because the Spirit inspired him to be faithfully patient. And he does the same thing for us as well. And then here's the, here's the, the for me, the, the, the part that I just draws my, my dramatic attention to this moment. Because Luke says, He came in the Spirit to the temple on the very day Joseph and Mary brought Jesus there according to the law of Moses. God has a way of leading us to the right place at the right time for the right reason. And I wonder, how many days did Simeon go into the temple? Because in my mind's eye, I have, Sim I have this vision of Simeon just sort of going to the temple and just sort of, just sort of leaning, just waiting. Just watching. Just. And then suddenly, as he's looking at the crowd on this particular day, knowing that he has been brought there by the Spirit, he sees this young couple. Mary is likely in her early teens. Joseph's not that much older. And he goes up to them. How many times, though, before that did Simeon wrestle with his faith while he waited for God to fulfill that word? How many times did the enemy tempt him to doubt that word and to doubt his own sanity? That did you really hear from God these things? How many times maybe have we experienced that same kind of doubt, that same kind of temptation? Is God really true to his word? Did God really make this promise to you? Is Jesus truly Jesus? Is he real? Or is it just somehow the figment of a group of men's imagination who got together in a smoke-grilled room to make a book that would somehow lead to the supremacy of masculinity and a submission of femininity. How many times do we think those kinds of things? And yet Simeon, when wrestling with that, goes every day, or as often as he could, to the temple, and then God kept his promise to him. 
Luke doesn't tell us how the Spirit prompted Simeon to go to the temple, just that he did. And then here's the thing, too. I wonder, do you think Simeon was surprised that when he saw Joseph and Mary and that infant Jesus, that's him? I mean, it's, it's the, 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 the fellow standing next to the woman with the baby. It's got to be him. But no, it's, it's, it's the baby. And the scene of just sort of Simeon, you know, that moment walking up to Mary. I'm, I'm trying to picture, we'll get to this in a moment too, I'm trying to picture Mary's reaction. This old man comes across as if the sea of people parts. And this old fellow walks up to her, doesn't greet her by name, doesn't say hello, doesn't introduce himself. He just takes the baby from her. And then looks at this child and says, now, now, Master, you are dismissing your bondservant in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation according to your word. Christ, and then he lays out this prophecy that Jesus is a a light of revelation for the Gentiles, for the glory of his people Israel, that at that moment what Simeon is telling us is that Jesus now himself is going to fulfill the role that God had designed for Israel. He had designed Israel and called Israel to be a light to the nations, to draw Israel into Jerusalem to worship the Lord. But now that role is going to be fulfilled by Jesus, that he is the light of the world to the light of the Jews and the Gentiles for the glory of Israel because salvation comes from the Jews. And so this child that Simeon holds in his arms, he prophesies marvelous things about. And there's great similarity with Simeon and some of the historic figures of the Bible in terms of waiting for God to keep his promise. I think of Abraham who waited 13 years from the time God told him, you'll have a son in heir. Until he, as Paul tells us in Romans, he considered his body as good as dead. And then God fulfilled that promise. You think of, of Hannah praying at the temple, her so overcome with grief and emotion that she, her lips are moving, but no sound is coming out because she does not have the capacity to bear a child. And yet God rewards her for her faithfulness. And I think also in, in loose gospel, we think of Zechariah and Elizabeth, this righteous and devout couple who were old and advanced in years, Luke says, who themselves, we know were praying for a child because when Gabriel appears to Zechariah, as he's ministering in the temple, he tells Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. So think about this, a, a man and woman, particularly a husband, well advanced in years, perhaps considering his body as good as dead, still praying that God would be faithful to grant he and his wife a child. And so Simeon falls in that line. God may delay in keeping his promise. Right? As the old line goes, he may not come at the right time, but he's right on time when he comes. When I think of Simeon's story, there is a proverb that summarizes exactly that moment when he takes Jesus into his arms. And it's a marvelous proverb. It sort of jumps out from its context in Proverbs 13 Proverbs 13, 12, where Solomon writes, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. 
Now, how appropriate is that? Because when Simeon takes Jesus in his arms, he is holding the light of the world and the one who is himself our access and indeed the very tree of life. And so the hope that had been deferred, that had left Simeon heartsick, now is fulfilled because he is desire given to him by God. Think about that too. It's like, why have you given me this word when year after year I'm disappointed? I don't see that word fulfilled. But now that hope that has been deferred that made him heartsick is fulfilled. And he doesn't have to live to see Jesus' full ministry. He just knows at that moment, this is the light of the world. This is the tree of life. This is the one who brings us back into fellowship with the creator of the universe. And so before moving on to talk about Anna, I want to just answer a question that I have raised, and maybe you've thought of it already. I, I, it, it just raises, what did Mary think when Simeon took that baby from her arms? We're told that both Joseph and Mary marveled at his words, their jaws dropped at his prophecy because for the first time, what's happening here is that Joseph and Mary are hearing the full content of Jesus' ministry. They both know that he's a unique child. They both know that he is son of the Most High. They both know that the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. They both know that he will be called holy, the son of God. And they both know what the shepherds said, that he is the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And though it doesn't appear in Luke's gospel, we know from Matthew's gospel that they were also visited by the Magi who brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And so they know something special about Jesus, but they don't know exactly what he's going to do. And now here, Simeon tells them, he is going to be a sign that is opposed. And by the way, Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. But he'll be that sign to be opposed so that the thoughts of many will be revealed. And that he is a light for the Gentiles. And that he is the glory of Israel. But it's the phrase when he turns to Mary. Then in addition to Mary just sort of being amazed and marveling at Simeon, just taking his baby from her, has made this pronouncement. When he turns to Mary and tells her, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that Jesus is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He is confirming a lot of Old Testament prophecy at this moment, particularly that of Isaiah. In Isaiah 8, 14 and 15, the prophet talks about the coming Messiah as one who will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. And then again, in Isaiah 28, 16, the prophet describes Jesus as a stone, cornerstone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. And in fact, Simeon's words also echo Mary's own words, when after Mary is greeted by her cousin Elizabeth and asks why has the mother of my Lord come to visit me? Mary responds with that Magnificat, the blessing of, of God. And she says in the middle of that, speaking of God, he has shown the strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. 
He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. So some will stumble over Jesus, and they will never rise, because they will reject him and his teaching. Some will stumble and fall over Jesus, but they will rise, because they will believe his teaching, and they will confess in him as the Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this is where Mary then re-enters the picture. Because among those who must fall and rise is Mary herself. This is in part what Simeon means when he looks at her and says, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Now on one hand, he is referring to the pain and the grief that Mary will feel as Jesus is misunderstood, eventually arrested, accused of being a heretic, and then crucified on the cross. And on the other hand, Simeon is telling Mary that if she is to be saved, she must acknowledge that she is a sinner and that she must confess faith in Christ as the Messiah. That the image there of, of taking Jesus in his arms, of Simeon taking the child from Mary, is significant as it is poignant. Because Mary now must come to realize that like Joseph and Simeon, like Abraham and Sarah, like Elizabeth and Zechariah, like Hannah, like Melchizedek, like so many Bible characters, she has her part to play and then must fade into the background. She must decrease so that Christ must increase. Jesus may be the fruit of her womb, but he does not belong to her. Her child, then, is not really her child. He isn't her Jesus. He doesn't belong to her. And she must let him go. And I will dare say that as a parent, that is one of the most difficult things to do, is to let your children go. And to watch them succeed is one thing, but to watch them fail, to watch them struggle, and you can't help them. That is where Mary will find herself. Because he may be the son of the Most High, but he is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel for a sign that is to be opposed. She is going to watch this son of hers grow up and be misunderstood and be opposed and be accused of all sorts of things incorrectly. And she can't protect him from that. But she was never meant to. We can't protect Jesus from those kinds of things either. We're never meant to. He can stand on his own. But Mary must give up her claim on Jesus so that he may lay claim to her soul as well as the souls of all who would trust in him. She must worship Jesus as her Savior and follow him as a Lord. And this is the thing, so that when it comes to salvation, <laughs> there's no family discount. There's no state farm discount. Right? Jake's not going to come along and say, hey, here's another way for you to get into the kingdom. There's only one way to get into the kingdom. Because anyone who wants to inherit eternal life has to do so by falling and rising at Jesus' feet. No one enters the kingdom of God unless they are born again through, by grace through faith in Christ. And if we are to be saved, then we must fall at Jesus' feet and we must then trust him to raise us up so that we may serve him, worship him, and proclaim him who is Christ the Lord. 
And just, just to remove all doubt uh, as to whether Simeon is on the mark here, God introduces a second witness. Now, when you, we're going to come to Anna, and you think about, okay, they already know, or at least Mary doesn't, something is definitely going on here. The shepherds have come and have told them about what they saw. This heavenly host, there we are at night, suddenly the skies open up, there's a multitude of angels singing and telling us we have to go to the city of David and, and we'll find a child there and he is Christ the Lord. Now, if that's not enough of a witness, and if Simeon is not enough of a witness, God being gracious sends another witness, and that is our beloved Anna. So Simeon exits stage left. Anna, who may have been watching the whole thing, enters from stage left, or stage right, rather. And so sometimes God proves his faithfulness in an unexpected way, and sometimes, like in the case of Anna, God proves his faithfulness through the faithfulness of others. We're told that she was a prophetess, that she possessed this God-given insight into things normally hidden from ordinary people, which is why she recognizes Jesus and why she gives thanks. Now, here again, just think about this. This is an old woman. She's either 84 on, by one account, or if you, you know, look at the margin in the ESV, she was a widow for 84 years, or so she could be anywhere between 84 and 100 years old. And suddenly she sees this child, watches the scene with Simeon, and then begins to tell everybody around her, that's him, that's the, con that's the consolation of Israel, that is the redemption of Jerusalem. That's the one. And they're like, who, that little baby, him. She's fulfilling her role as a prophet because that's what prophets do. They receive insight, they don't keep it to themselves, they share it out with others. We know that she was a daughter of Phanuel and Asher, which tells us two things about her, that she really existed because Luke is giving us her family line. If you want to find out who she is, you can look her up, Luke says. She's in this line here. And that she's also really Jewish. Now, why does Luke do that? Why does he bother giving us such exquisite detail about her family and her tribe? Oh, and by the way, the, the tribe of Asher, Asher in Hebrew means happy. So Anna's pretty happy at this moment because she's got to see the redemption of Jerusalem. The reason why Luke gives us all of this detail is because he's writing, as he says in chapter 1, an orderly account so that we may have certainty about the things we've been taught about Jesus. So he wants us to be confident that everything we know about Jesus is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Anna was also advanced in years. Like I said, she was either 84 or 105. She married young. Her husband died after seven years of marriage. She never remarried. And she spent her time then in prayer and fasting. She went to the temple night and day. She was there every day. She, you could go there, and there was Anna from the time she was a young girl to the time she's an old woman. And I think there's another thing that's going on here as well, just by way of a side note. I have the sense that Anna's widowhood and her devotion to God likely anticipate Mary's own widowhood and commitment to Jesus. That after her husband died, Anna devoted herself to God. And in similar manner, after Joseph passes away and after Jesus dies, his responsibility as the oldest son was to care for his mother. He passes that responsibility on to John, the beloved disciple, and Mary must now live in his home and be accepted as his mother. So the Lord knows how to care for those whom he calls to follow him, is what I'm saying. That there are times when we suffer great loss, great pain, great sorrow, 
where the things that we have held so tightly to and did not want to lose are lost to us, either by circumstance or our own doing. And at that moment, we have a choice to make, and it's a painful choice. The choice is to live with our pain and to let that define us and shape us for the rest of our lives, but to rather make that pain a sacrifice and an offering to God that he might redeem, restore, and renew. That he would be our husband, that he would be our elder brother, that he would be the one who would hold us up and bear us up. That's Advent. That's why Jesus came. Anna's there, she's fasting. And I think, too, when I think of fasting here, Anna devoting herself, there's a, there's a certain rejection that's taking place. When you fast, you are rejecting, if you will, what the world has to offer so that you can separate yourself and devote yourself to God. It's, if you will, I think it's a sign of protest against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it says that my priority, my commitment is at a higher level than what food I eat, what drink I consume. As Jesus told the apostles in John 4, I have food of which you do not realize. My food is to do the work that God gave me to do. And when we fast, we engage in that act of protest against the world, saying, no, my sustenance does not come from meat and drink, but it comes from the bread of life, who is true meat and true drink, as Jesus says in John 6. And I think just like Simeon, Anna's experience also is, a, is summarized by Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. By God's grace, Anna and Simeon, they both lived to see the birth of Christ. They both saw the consolation of Israel and the one who is the redemption of Jerusalem. We find ourselves living in the shadow of that, in a blessed shadow of that. So whereas their hope had been deferred and fulfilled, we see hope fulfilled but now deferred. We sang Joy to the World by Isaac Watts, a marvelous hymn. Watts did not write Joy to the World for Advent. Read the words. Joy to the World anticipates Christ's second Advent. No more let sins and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He makes his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. During Advent, we prepare our hearts for the one who is the consolation of Israel. We wait for the one who will bring redemption to Jerusalem, who has done it. But we live in the already and the not yet. We wait for Jesus to come and put us right with God. And he does that through the Spirit who is given to help us wait. Advent is a reminder that while Jesus has already put things right, he has not yet made all things right, nor has he yet made all things new. And so in this sense, I think Advent is designed to make us nostalgic for the future. Because ever since Jesus ascended into heaven, we have been waiting and we have been hoping for that second advent. Even Paul says, creation groans for his appearing. And yet rather than make us waver in our faith, God intends our waiting to teach us patience, to strengthen our faith, to encourage our hope, and to deepen our love for all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Advent also, I think, reminds us 
Faithfulness is not for the faint of heart, folks. And this is why God has given us two witnesses, the Spirit and the Word. Because like Simeon and Anna, these two testify to the faithfulness of God. He keeps His promises. He fulfills everything He says He will. And so we are then able, with the Spirit's help, to wait with a patient hope because Jesus has come. Jesus is present now among us through His Spirit. And he will come again until he does. Let us continue then to learn faithfulness while we wait for God to keep his promise, knowing that God will sometimes reward our faithfulness in unexpected ways and that he will prove his faithfulness to us through the faithfulness of others. You think about that. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for hope fulfilled and we give you thanks for hope deferred because that makes us nostalgic for the time when it will be fulfilled and we shall see him who is now the tree of life, the one who climbed that tree, the one who was nailed to that tree that we might live. We took what was not rightfully ours, but Christ has now come to give back what is ours by himself dying in our place. May we be like Simeon and Anna, waiting patiently and faithfully, resolved to be confident that what God has promised, God will do. And may we be like Mary, who in her own faithfulness pondered the things that were said about her Son, our Savior, her Lord. And may we, Lord God, be bold to live and to proclaim and to say that this, this Jesus is the consolation of Israel, this Jesus is the redemption of Jerusalem. This Jesus is a light for the Gentiles. Help us to do this, we ask, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.